Imagine if you could sit down at your desk in the morning, piping hot coffee in hand, you could pop open your laptop, double click on a document on your desktop that says life plan, so you could check on what's happening this week, this month, or even this year. Well, I wanna help you create that plan. Let's spend five days together making a roadmap for your future so that you can live all the rest of your days on purpose. Yes, you can own the future that's coming your way. The five-day Own Your Future Challenge is absolutely free to join, and I've got a spot with your name on it. Don't let another week, month, year, or even decade pass you by without owning the vision for who you want to become and the impact you want to make while you're alive. This is five free days of learning from incredible world leaders, helping you to uncover who you truly are and leading you to craft a roadmap and set goals aligned with the future meant for you. This is important. Join me and other amazing global leaders and experts to help you own your future starting May 11th. You can join right now for free at jennaschallenge.com. That's jennaschallenge.com for the five-day Own Your Future Challenge. I can't wait to see you there. You're listening to The Gold Digger Podcast, episode number 220. Autumn Calabrese has gone from living paycheck to paycheck as a personal trainer to being a mini fitness mogul building her empire. Autumn doesn't believe in excuses, just straight up hard work, and that's what's gotten her to the top. She has a passion for helping people and a determination like no other, and it's fully evident in today's interview. Autumn takes this positive approach to training and motivating and inspiring you through even the toughest of workouts. And when it comes to helping people achieve their goals, she takes it really personally. Your struggles are her struggles. Your wins are her wins. We saw this for the first time with Autumn's breakthrough workout programs, the 21-Day Fix, the follow-up 21-Day Fix Extreme, and the 80-Day Obsession. As you may remember from episode 183, all about how to rock free challenges, I told you how challenges are a great way to grow your following, create a movement, gain exposure, and ultimately grow your business. And today, Autumn is going to teach us how she stuck out in a saturated market and how she developed this challenge that is changing lives all over the country. Now, before we dive on into Autumn's interview, let me read the review of the week from Morgan R. Mann. It is titled, This Podcast is a Must. Okay, so I just found this podcast about two weeks ago, and I kid you not, I've already almost listened to all of Jenna's shows. It's that dang good. Jenna is so motivating and has such a wonderful voice that you can just listen to her for hours on end. Let me just say thank you for that. She just gets in your head and makes you want more out of this life. I just started my photography biz and made it legal before finding the Gold Digger podcast. So when I found this, I was like, holy smokes, I need this. I need Jenna. She relates to me so, so, so much. Even if you don't have a direct purpose or you're not a photographer, just listen. She will relate to you in some way and just make you feel like you can get up and make moves. Thank you so much, Morgan, for this review. I sincerely love hearing from each and every single one of you. It is like little love notes left by you guys that just keep me going and keep me excited to continue producing this show so that you guys can learn from experts. And speaking of an expert, I think it's time that I introduce you to Autumn. Let's do this. You're listening to the Gold Digger Podcast, where we firmly believe that work doesn't have to feel like work. 
Self-made millionaire and marketing guru Jenna Kutcher will help you redefine what success looks like. It's time to hear from the experts, listen in on honest conversations, and learn the best tips and tricks that helped others pave their own way and craft their dream career. If you're ready to dig in, do the work, and tackle your biggest goals, you're in the right place. Here's your host, educator, photographer, and mac and cheese lover, Jenna Kutcher. Thank you to Skillshare for supporting Gold Digger. Skillshare is offering you a limited time offer of two months of Skillshare for free. To sign up, head to Skillshare.com slash Gold Digger 2. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash Gold Digger and then the number two to get two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for free. Special thanks to our next sponsor, LinkedIn. Did you know that you can find your perfect hire on LinkedIn? LinkedIn jobs matches people to the role based on who they really are, their skills, interests, even how open they are to new opportunities. For $50 off your first job posting, go to linkedin.com slash gold digger. That's linkedin.com slash gold digger. Certain terms and conditions apply, but you can't pass this one up. Welcome to the show, Autumn. I am so excited to have you on the Gold Digger podcast today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be on with you. Oh, we're going to have a blast. So I want to know, I mean, I have followed along. I've looked at all of your amazing work, but I want to know, like, what is the real story behind Autumn? Like, how did you get to where you are today? What did your journey look like? Because I know that it probably had a lot of work, a lot of time and a lot of twists and turns. Oh my gosh. It's so funny. I say this all the time. I'm like, they're like, there needs to be a whole book just on how I got to where I am because, but it was definitely not an easy journey. And there's been so many twists and turns along the way that it's like, I really have no business being where I am today. If, if you like, really, if you were look at it, the odds were definitely stacked against me in a very strong way. And I'll just sort of give you a couple of highlights or sort of lowlights, I guess, if you will, <laughs> from like, even from childhood, when I was, I think I was five, I went to bed one night complaining that my hip hurt. And I woke up the next day and couldn't walk, like fell out of the bed, screaming in pain, rushed to the hospital, spent a week in the hospital with every test known to man at the time run on me, huge needles being stuck into my hip because they thought maybe I had a flesh eating bacteria on the inside of my body that was eating my muscle. That was not the case. Um, but literally was in the hospital for a week and couldn't walk. And they never figured out what was wrong. I just got better. And because of that, it was a slow start. Like I was a super active kid, but I wanted to dance and I wanted to do gymnastics and things like that. And my parents wouldn't let me because since they never figured out what caused the hip issue, they were afraid of what might bring it back. So I didn't even get to start dancing until I was in eighth grade, which for a dancer, anybody that wants to be a competitive professional dancer, that's a really late start. I was 13. Most of the kids in my class had seven years on me. And to go into a competitive dance role, you need ballet. Even if you're not competing in ballet, you need ballet training. So here I am entering ballet at 13. And these girls have all been doing it since they were like four years old. I was way behind. Like I said, the odds were already stacked against me, even in that. So it was from a young age, I learned very quickly that I was going to have to fight and fight hard for what I want because it always felt like I was behind the eight ball. Like I had to fight my dad to let me dance. 
because of my hip issue. Then I got into dance and I had to fight my way onto that competitive team because I didn't have the same experience the other girls had. So for me, I was dancing from the heart because my technique was not at the same level as everybody else's. And then I went on to college and I, I knew like it wasn't like I was blind to the fact that the colleges I wanted to go to were a long shot at best, but really they were like, I knew they were a no-go. There was no way I was getting into Juilliard as a dancer. (laughs) I was not a ballerina, (laughs) but I applied, but I applied because I was like, if I don't apply, how will I know? Like, I'd rather get the rejection and know than wonder. So I applied. I applied to all my schools that I wanted to go to. I got the one I got into was a little performing arts school called Webster University in St. Louis, Missouri, which is where I was going to high school at the time. And I was thrilled because it just meant I got to do what I wanted to do. I got to dance. And then in college, I was dealing with other issues. So My hip, from what I can gather these days, if I had to put a diagnosis on it myself, is I have a bulging disc in my lower spine that we found out I had when I was 19. I would venture to guess I had it when I was five because I've had it go out on me enough now as an adult. And I know what the pain is now to register that if I can remember correctly, that was what I was feeling when I was five. I just couldn't handle the pain as a five-year-old. So even in college, I was dealing with my hip. I was dealing with my bulging disc. Because of it, it was causing knee issues. And then I was dealing with a ballet master who just hated me, hated me, tortured me every single day, dismissed me, made it very known that he was never going to cast me in a performance. And you can't graduate if you don't get cast in a performance. So I was never going to get my degree as a dancer, which was heartbreaking because here I am again, dancing from the heart, giving it all I had. And the one thing about me is I am a fighter, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a not, because it was like I got pushed too far with him. And I finally just walked into his office one day and I was like, this is BS. I'm dancing the best I can. I'm giving you everything I have. And he's like, no, you're not. You're, you know, you're sitting out complaining about your back, your knee. And I'm like, I can't walk. And I'm dancing. Like I'm showing up when the doctor is telling me I'm going to end up in back surgery. And he didn't want to hear it. Like he just literally like waved me off. Like I was being lazy or I just didn't like ballet. So I wasn't going to try. And I had to make the decision at that point to stay in school And really, what was I staying for? Because I was never going to get the degree or leave. And I made the really hard choice to leave and like, like be like, well, what am I doing with my life? Because the doctor at that point, that's when they, like I said, they discovered the bulging disc and they were like, if you keep dancing like this, you will end up in back surgery by the time you're 21. Well, that didn't seem like a great option. So I packed my bags. I moved to California. And that sort of starts the tumultuous relationship I have with my mother. She was living in California at the time. I moved in with her. That didn't go well. I was actually in LA for like seven or eight weeks, I think. And it was just so bad between me and my mom. And I didn't really know where anything was. Like I I came to audition and do that sort of thing. But I didn't realize it at the time. She lived so far away from LA. She lived down in Palos Verdes, which is like a two-hour drive from LA if you're in traffic. I didn't realize that. And so I moved back to St. Louis. I actually went back to school, not the same college. I went to a different college and I was started studying to to possibly go into physical therapy because I thought like if I can't dance, maybe I can help dancers like me. And so I that sort of also started my interest in the health fitness 
area of work. Again, I did not stay. I did not finish my degree because I didn't have the passion for that, that exact type of work. So I was going through school and I was like, this isn't what I want to be doing. I felt very lost. I just was like, you know what? I'm going to work. I'm going to work. I'm going to work. I'm going to work. And I'm going to save as much money as I can for the next year. And I'm going back to LA in one year. That was my goal. So I worked literally like two jobs, saved every single penny I had that I could. And like one year later, I packed my bags and I drove back across the country with a girlfriend of mine. She was moving to San Francisco. I was moving to LA. So we got to LA and then she took a plane up to San Fran. (laughs) But at that time, my older brother was living here and he was in LA. He was in Valley Village and I moved two buildings over from him and I just hit the pavement. I went and got a job. I was waiting tables. I started going to acting class. And so it was all of the things that anybody wanting to make it in the entertainment industry does. And there were a lot of ups and downs. And along the way, I met my husband. He's now my ex-husband, but we're very good friends. But in meeting him, it was like I was getting burnt out on the trying to act thing. And and like, you know, that didn't matter how good you were. It kind of mattered who you knew more than anything. And I wasn't doing bad. I mean, I had gotten my SAG card. I had been in a couple commercials, little things here and there. My husband was 12 years older than me. And he was like, look, if we're going to get married, I need you to have like a real job. And that was a little bit of a blow to me because I was I was headed in the direction of finding my path, but I was getting forced there a little bit earlier. And he wasn't doing it in a mean way or trying to be forceful. It was just what he was comfortable with. Of If we're going to have a family, this acting thing, it's not going anywhere for you right now. Like That's not really steady income. How can we count on that? And that's when I decided to become a personal trainer. It's when I got my, I was done waiting tables. I had moved on. I was working in a casting office and I decided to start studying to become a personal trainer. I studied through the National Academy of Sports Medicine. It took me about three months. I got my first certification. And again, I hit the pavement just running and applying to different places. And I started with a small company that did in-home training that worked with everybody from kids to the elderly and in between. And quickly realized I had found my spot. Like I was having so much fun. I was loving what I was doing. I was getting to help people. I was getting to be active. I got to set my own hours and I was making good money, but I was still working for somebody else. It was still under their control. I still wasn't making all the money and I was learning a lot. And along the way, I was getting asked by a lot of women about pregnancy and pre and postnatal fitness. My sister got pregnant and asked me what she could do. And I was like, huh, I went and got certified to be a pre and postnatal specialist because I was like, I should know this. And so I carved out a little niche for myself there also here in Los Angeles because that was almost 14 years ago. So there wasn't even that many people practicing pre and postnatal fitness. Like a lot of yoga was going on, but there wasn't a lot of like lifting weights while you're pregnant kind of thing. And what can I do? So I started to make a very good business and name for myself that way as well. And it got to the point where it was like, it was time to go out on my own. I had learned all I was going to learn from the lady I was working for. She was wonderful, but it was time to go out on my own. And I did. And that was going great. I had built a very nice business along the way. I got married. I got pregnant with my son. We had my son. My husband wasn't loving his job. He wasn't loving LA. He was thinking that he didn't want to stay here anymore. He ended up getting a job offer in Dallas, Texas. And my son was five months old at the time. And my business was was doing very well. And we decided that we would move to Dallas, that 
you know, like he was going to be the breadwinner. I could do fitness anywhere and we would move and we moved to Dallas. And at the time my mom was living in Dallas. So it was like, okay, she could help us with the baby while I got on my feet. And, you know, while we found a place to live, while I got my business going, that kind of thing. And we got to, and the day, actually the day before we left for Dallas, I was standing in our empty apartment with my best friend and I was sobbing. And I was like, this feels so wrong. What did I agree to? And she was like, it's fine. You're going to be fine. You're just nervous. And I was like, no, I'm telling you, I feel it in my bones. Like, this is, this is wrong. Obviously, we went. And I cried every day that we were there. And I hated it. And my relationship with my mom got much worse in those five weeks that I was there because she was being of no help. And, and I'm, I'm cushing that story <laughs> a lot just because that's, that's its own story in and of itself. And after five weeks, I was so miserable that I looked at my husband and I said, I'm going back with or without you. And I said, I don't belong here. And if I wait any longer, my clients will be gone. I said, it's been five weeks. They're all still looking for people. I'm going back. And I mean, it wasn't anything to do with our marriage. It was just, I knew that this is where, that LA was where I belonged. And we packed the car up, packed my son up, drove back to LA. And he said, you know, he wasn't, he couldn't leave his job. He had just gotten the job. And he said, I'll get a transfer as soon as possible, but I have no idea when that's going to be. So he dropped me in LA. He went back to Dallas. So I had our six month old son. So essentially for the first time I was a single mom because he was in Dallas and I was in Los Angeles. And actually at the time I was in San Diego and I was driving to Los Angeles every single morning at 3.30 in the morning, training my clients all day because my mother-in-law lived in San Diego. And so she would watch my son all day. And then I'd drive back home at night down to San Diego. And after about a month of that, I was so tired that I could barely make the drive anymore. And I was like, this is getting dangerous because I can't keep my eyes open. And so I was like, I'm going to rent an apartment in LA. That's what I did. I rented an apartment right by all my, where like the neighborhood that my clients were mostly in. I hired a nanny and that's it from 4 a.m. to 3 p.m. I saw clients because I basically stacked everybody in a row. And then from 3 p.m. on, I was taking care of my son. And I think I, it was like that for about three or four months. And then my husband got transferred back and, and the recession kicked in. And I lost. So first the business was booming. And then all of a sudden I lost a bunch of clients right before Christmas. You know, everybody, the holidays are coming. They're going to spend money. The recession is kicking in. And where do you cut? You cut in your personal trainer. So again, it was another blow to us. It was like, just as we're like, he had just gotten back. We Things were just getting good again. And then another blow. I ended up going to work at Equinox at a gym because I was like, at least it's steady income. We need it right now because I just lost literally half of my roster. And all along the way, I had wanted to develop this portion control product. I had been working with clients and seeing some of the issues that they were having where they would go up five pounds and lose five pounds and go up and lose and, and never really having success. And so I had the idea for it. But my ex-husband was very much of the mindset. He's very much like a nine to fiver. He's like, you go to work, you make your paycheck and that's it. Like being an entrepreneur scares the hell out of him. And I come from an entrepreneur family. My dad owned restaurants his whole, like, that's all I knew. So I watched my dad hustle, but he was always doing what he loved. And I watched him work through the ups and the downs and the struggles and not give up. And so to me, it was no big deal. It was just like, that's just what you, you do. If you want something, you just, you make it happen. And so we did butt heads about that a little, like uh, a lot, actually. <laughs> I didn't really start working on the product. 
until we got divorced. And and when we got divorced, it was it had nothing to do with business. It had nothing to do with the fact that we lived apart for three months. We had grown apart. Like I said, he was 12 years older than me. And as I was coming into my own, because we were 24 when I met, you know, by the time I was about to be 30, I actually had just turned 30 when I asked for the divorce. So, you know, there's a big difference between 24 and 30. You quickly, you're learning who you are. And we had always said to each other, look, I come from a divorced family and he didn't, his parents were married their whole lives. But I said, I'll never do to you what I watched my parents do to each other. And he had been married and divorced before me and had a son from his first wife. And I said, and we will never do what you guys did because it was his first divorce was horrible. So before we ever got married, we always agreed if it didn't work out, like there was going to never be hard feelings. We were never going to use our son to manipulate each other ever. That just wasn't going to like that. We were, you know, if we got this baby to raise, we're going to still be friends. And some people look at that and they're like, well, you set yourselves up for failure. And I said, no, we set ourselves up for reality. Look, a lot of marriages don't work out. So we're being realistic and just saying like, if for, you know, we're going to work our butts off to make this work, but if it doesn't, we're not going to hate each other at the end of it. And we did, we worked really hard. And for the last year of our marriage, we were working a lot and we just learned that we had very different paths that we needed to go down and we were going to be better as friends than we were going to be as a couple. And if we stayed together as a couple, we probably would get to the point where we hated each other. But if we got divorced, we could probably still be really good friends. And getting divorced was the best thing we ever did because we are great friends to this day. I'm actually opening a restaurant with my brother next month. He's our general manager. He lives 10 minutes from me. We both see our son every single day. He's actually been my assistant for the last three months (laughs) because in the process of getting the restaurant open, he's not working full-time right now. He's helping get the restaurant open. But other than that, he's helps with my son. You know, I bring them on work trips sometimes. They stay in their own room, obviously, but it's great because I get to have my son there and see him when I have breaks, but he's with his dad. It's not, I don't have to feel guilty that he's with a nanny. And so that like, but again, it's not like the divorce was all like rainbows and butterflies. It's still a divorce. It's still really hard. It's still very scary. It was still complete upheaval and changing of sort of everything, you know, everything from like, okay, we went from two incomes to now one and how do, what can you afford for living situations and all this stuff. But when the dust settled, I was able to do exactly what I wanted to do without having to answer to somebody, negotiate with somebody, debate it with somebody. It was just like, this is my money. And if it doesn't work out, I only have myself to answer to. Yes, I need to make sure I I can take care of my son. And I did always make that priority number one. But other than that, I can work on this product and not worry about whether or not somebody else is going to question me on it. And that's what I did. I worked on it, finally got it done, had a friend who was a producer at the Hallmark Channel on a show called Home and Family, launched it on Home and Family. And it was doing well for selling it out of my one-bedroom apartment. And I also had several sort of high-end clients in the entertainment business. And the long and short of that is it got passed on from one person to the next, and it made its way into the hands of Beachbody. And they called me in they, for an interview, and they said, you know, if you know, we like what you have, blah, 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 if we were to make you an offer, we would buy it from you. You would stay on as the face and create workouts to go with it. And I was like, yeah, great. Where's the dotted line? Um, 
and, and, and it still wasn't easy. You know, the day I got the phone call to go in for the meeting, it was almost a month until I went in for the meeting because it was right before the holidays and the CEO was leaving for vacation. So I had to wait for him to get back from vacation to even have the meeting. Then we had the meeting and, you know, you, you wrap up the meeting and you walk out and you question in your mind everything you said. And did you say the right thing? And I, like I panicked and was like, I didn't say the right thing. And I sent the one woman an email and I was like, you know, I hope I explained myself well, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, no, you explained yourself great, blah, blah, blah. We'll be in touch. And it was still like two months until they made me the offer. So it was like two months of checking my email every single day and, and really thinking like, okay, it was just another opportunity that wasn't going to happen. And there were so many things that were opportunities that never ended up happening. There was a point where I was up to replace Jillian Michaels on The Biggest Loser. And it came down to me and one other person. And the casting director called me the day before they made the announcement. And she said, I'm fighting so hard for you, but if you don't get it, you'll know why when they make the announcement. And that was the year they had Anna Kornikova come on as the other trainer. And so they made the announcement the next day that it was Anna Kornikova. And, you know, I was so mad because I was like, you're picking a tennis player. She's not even a trainer. Like, what sense does this make? And it was like one of those things because it, it was like four months of auditioning to not get it. And there were so many things like that. And I say this all the time now. I didn't say it then, but I say it now. A business is only as strong as its people. And you guys know I'm a huge advocate for outsourcing, hiring, and building your dream team. It's no secret that every hire matters. So don't just settle for posting and crossing your fingers that the right person is going to come along. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent. If you're looking to hire, 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn. That's right. Quality candidates waiting to be found by you. Because LinkedIn considers skills, experience, and location to match and promote your job to potential candidates, I have no doubt that you can find exactly who it is you're looking for. Out of the 22 million professionals that are active on LinkedIn every week from every industry, you're sure to find the perfect match. Consider this, most LinkedIn members aren't actively searching for a new job, but 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities, and you get the chance to reach them. Basically, to sum it up, if you're not using LinkedIn for your hiring needs, you're missing out. Head to linkedin.com slash golddigger and get $50 off towards your first job posting. That's linkedin.com slash golddigger for $50 off your first job post today. Terms and conditions apply, but this is a great opportunity to find out how LinkedIn leads to a different hire every 10 seconds. I'm always asked what the font I use on my website and on the Gold Digger Instagram feed is to achieve that custom hand-lettered look. The truth? I learned how to create my own handwritten elements with an abstract art and doodling for iPads course on Skillshare. Seriously, Skillshare is an online learning community for creators with more than 25,000 classes in things like design, business, and more. You'll discover countless ways to fuel your curiosity, your creativity, and your career. Take classes in social media marketing, mobile photography, creative writing, and even illustration. Whether you're looking to discover a new passion, start a side hustle, or gain new professional skills, Skillshare is there to keep you learning, thriving, and reaching those new year goals. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. 
That's right. Skillshare is offering the Gold Digger podcast listeners two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for free. To sign up, head to Skillshare.com slash Gold Digger 2. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash Gold Digger 2 to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Gold Digger and the number two. Those missed opportunities, I don't call them missed opportunities anymore, and I don't call them failures. I don't believe I've ever failed in my life. I do believe I've been redirected a lot to the path that I was supposed to end up on. I didn't know it was the path I was supposed to end up on because I thought I was supposed to be here or I thought I was supposed to be there. So, so many times we get caught up in the obstacle or in what seems to be the failure. And instead of recognizing it as a redirect, you can get lost in the quote unquote failure of it. And if you get lost and you drown in the failure and you give up, you miss, you actually missed your opportunity because it was redirecting you to what was much better. I was never meant to be on The Biggest Loser. Not because that wouldn't have been a great opportunity. That's Jillian Michael's spot. That's what she is known for. Nobody was going to step into that spot and do better than she did. It was actually going, it would actually have probably hindered my career more than helped it because you go in, you try to replace somebody like Jillian and you're never going to do it. And then you're perceived as a failure. Whereas with Beachbody, that was my fresh, clean start. They signed me. I got to be the brand new face. The product did amazing. But even in the development of the product, it was a year in the making And it had its own ups and downs and twists and turns. It was supposed to be a nine-week test group. So I put clients on hold for nine weeks. Well, basically, I found them subs for nine weeks. And then nine weeks turned into 12 weeks and 12 weeks turned into 15. And what was supposed to be a nine-week test group that was one in the morning and one in the afternoon seeing clients in between turned into nine months. So at a certain point, at about three months in, I had to give up a significant amount of my clients never knowing how the product was going to do. We were still in development. I had to just trust that. I mean, I had a certain amount of money that I was given for development and it was enough to live on and take care of Dominic and that sort of thing. But from that point, it's anyone's guess as to if your product will be well received or not. But I had maybe a little bit of of a, I don't know what the right word is, but I had an inflated sense of security, I think, going into it, which is a good thing. It was a good thing at the time that I didn't know that there could be anything other than success with, with Beachbody. Beachbody was like the creme, de, it's the creme de la creme. It's where you want to be. They're the biggest thing in fitness in creating workout programs and that sort of thing. And so when I signed on with them, you know, people would be like, well, don't get your hopes up and da da da. And I was like, dude, it's Beachbody. Of course, it's going to be amazing. Like, not really realizing, hey, guess what? Not every product ends up doing amazing. But in my mind, it was a sure thing, which I do think was a good mindset to have. Like I said, it was naive, but it was a great mindset to have because I just didn't feel like I could be beat. I just felt like, and so everything I did was with this sense of security of like, yes, it's going to be great. And this positivity around it with like no fear or no doubt, because I believed in them so much that I I just was like, of course, we're going to do great together. And, And the program did, it did end up doing amazing and has been, I believe their biggest seller to date. But like I said, it was a little bit of a naive, false sense of security 
but it was good to have. And, and sometimes you have to have that. Sometimes you, you have to just blindly believe in yourself, regardless of if you have somebody backing you up or not, because anytime you surround your hopes and your dreams with fear, I don't feel like you're coming at it from the right point. So sometimes you do have to be just a little bit arrogant, not in a bad way that's going to get you in trouble. But look, if nobody else believes in you, you better believe in you. Because if you don't believe in yourself, you're dead in the water. You're going nowhere. If you have no faith in what you're doing or that you can get to what your goal is, how are you ever going to get there? You're going to quit before you're going to quit in the middle of all those, like I said, those redirects, because you're going to see them as failures instead of redirects. And when people ask me, they say to me all the time, like, but how did you just, how did you not quit? Like you had so much adversity against you. And I'm like, it's the feisty Italian in me that when somebody tells me I can't do something, I'm like, oh, really? Watch me. (laughs) And like I said, that's probably a good thing at certain times and probably a bad thing at other times. But it's what really helped get me to where I was because there was plenty of times where I was knocked on the ground and cry, you know, like literally crying to my sister, crying to my dad, crying to my best friend. But that, whatever that was, that burning fire deep within, I relate it if anybody is a Rocky fan. Rocky three, he gets knocked down by Clubber Lane and he's fighting and, and they, they show, or no, it's not Rocky three. It's Rocky five. He's fighting Tommy Gunn. I'm sorry. I'm giving you a movie reference, but this is what it felt like. This is literally what it feels like. He gets knocked down and he's on the ground. He's laid out and you think he's done. And that was me plenty of times on the ground, laid out. And Mickey, his trainer had passed away, but he hears Mickey in his head say, get up, you son of a bitch. Mickey loves you. Finish this fight. And there was always something in me, no matter how many times I got knocked down, that was like that voice. And it wasn't a specific person, but it was like, get up, finish your fight. Get up, finish your fight. You're not done. There's bigger and better for you. Like you don't quit. So for me, there's always been that. I love that. I think that's so awesome. I want to know, I mean, you developed this program and I'm a huge fan of challenges and timelines and really giving people this deadline. How did you kind of come up with that? And what do you think made it so successful? The 21 days, how did that happen? So I can't actually take credit for that. That was not my idea. That was my boss's idea. That's Carl Deichler, the CEO of Beachbody. So I created the portion control program. And and then obviously when I signed on with Beachbody, it was like I had created it to the best of my ability to create it with the money I had. Then you get Beachbody behind you and they say, well, you know, tell us all your hopes and dreams for what you would want this to be. And that's when we got to make it color coded and, and that sort of thing and, and really like dive in and, and dial it in. And then they said to me, you're going to create workouts that are for a 21 day program. And I actually, that might be the only time I had a little doubt in my head because he said to me, we want to be able to say people can lose 10 pounds in 21 days with these fitness, with these workouts and this nutrition program. And the workouts were only 30 minutes long and he wanted them designed that anybody could do them, beginner level or somebody who'd been working out forever. That was really intimidating to me because I was like, oh my God, what am I going to create that in 30 minutes I can kick their butt, but it's easy enough that a beginner could do it. And not easy, meaning like the workouts weren't 
going to push your endurance level, but easy meaning the moves weren't complicated. And, and then put this nutrition with it. And there was about four or five different versions of what the workout program would be. And then we finally got it refined down to what it is now. And then we went into casting our test group and running it 21 days at a time. So here's the nutrition. And I was taking them through these workouts. They weren't filmed yet. So it was me every day leading them for 30 minutes. This is, this is the workout. This is the nutrition. This is the workout. This is the nutrition. Answer their questions, blah, blah, blah. And that helped us refine the program even more. So it was really Carl's idea to make it a 21-day program. And that came from the idea that has been proven over and over that it takes 21 days to break a bad habit or to start a new one. And our goal was to break the bad habit of being lazy or eating bad food and to create the habit of exercising daily and fueling your body for your goals. So that's really where the 21 days came from, was from that idea. The challenge groups actually were really interesting how that came about. Again, not 100% my idea by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, we would always run test groups as part of what we do at Beachbody to prove our programs work. Everything is proven. We don't just guess at anything. When we create it, we test it and test it and test it. But after the program had launched, and we, like I said, it was nine months of running that test group and watching people steadily lose weight for nine months, it launched. And Beachbody has a coach network. So people who sell the programs as well. And coaches were running challenges. And a lot of times they would host their challenges on Facebook. So a product would launch and they would invite 10 or 15 or 20 people to join their challenge group. And that's how they would take people through the program to hold them accountable and that sort of thing. And I would be asked to like go in and comment on people's stuff here and there and things like that. And I finally said to my boss one day, I said, I'm going to host my own challenge group. And he was like, what? Because that was unheard of. No trainer had ever done it before. And I said, I'm going to take people through 21 Day Fix. Come on, the creator of the program, like I'm going to host a Facebook group. You know, they're going to give, obviously they have to buy the program to do it. I was like, let's just, let's see what happens. And he was like, all right, cool. I like it, do it. And so I put it out there on Facebook, you know, here's the link to buy the product. This is when the group starts. I'm going to take you through the nutrition, to take you through the workouts. I'm here for the next 21 days to encourage you and motivate you, blah, blah, blah. 20,000 people signed up for that first group. And he was blown away. He was like, holy crap, what just happened? And uh, so 21 days and it was absolutely amazing. And then it sort of, I was like, that was great. A few months went by after that one ended. And I was like, I'm going to do another one. And after doing about three of them, some of the other trainers started to catch on like, wow, that's a great way to get people involved in your product. So some of the other trainers were starting to run big groups as well for their products. And it just, you know, obviously social media was evolving at the time too. And this started to become the new norm of like, yeah, you get into one of these fitness challenges. You, we were starting to see it across the board from fitness apps doing it to, you know, us doing it, to our coaches doing it. And, and it just went from there. But I've seen so much success with it because it is, it's a community. It's a community all doing the same thing, right? They're there and they're relating to each other. Whether, whether it's a stay-at-home mom or a dad that's working you know, 50 hours a week, it doesn't matter. They're all doing the same fitness thing. They're all doing the same nutrition thing. So they get to check in with each other every single day. I'll be honest. 
once the group gets going, I check in on them every day and I'll like photos and comments. They end up talking to each other way more than, I'm sorry, my dog is barking, way more than I can ever keep up with 20 or 30,000 people. So like I said, they keep each other accountable and, and they, you know, they post their sweaty selfies. They post what food they're making for the day. They post their struggles. They post their wins. And that is really, like I said. I love that. I think that it's like this combined energy and this focus and going through something together, like creates so much connection. I want to know, like, let's say somebody is creating a challenge, no matter what kind of business they're in. Let's say it's how to clean your house for the next seven days or how to meditate or what. Are there any tips on helping people find success in your program? Yeah, absolutely. It's one is really knowing what your program is. Like before you host a challenge, really having a complete outline of this is what the challenge is. You know, if it's how to meditate. What are they, what are you asking them to do on day one? Are you directing them to your app? You know, meditation isn't easy for people. So is there a day one meditation that's only three minutes long or five minutes long? And then is there a day two? Is there a morning meditation? Is there a nighttime meditation? Are they supposed to be journaling what they experience in their meditation? You know, after that. So really having that outline of like, this is what you're going to do to get to this. You know, when I create a fitness program, obviously that's what we're doing. This is what you're going to do. You're going to do these workouts and this nutrition, and it's going to get you to here. So, so saying, so even when you're marketing it, because that's the first thing you have to do is you have to get people in it. So you need to be able to tell them what they're going to experience. You don't want to just throw the group up and hit start. I always say you want to give yourself at least two weeks of advertising it so that you can draw the community in. It's not bad to have one or two people in the group, but it's better to have five or 10, right? Just because it's a little bit more of a sense of a community. If you only have one or two people and one of them's shy and they don't want to talk, that other person kind of feels like it's just them. But if you've got four or five or six people and four of them are talking and two of them aren't because they're a little shyer and they're sitting back watching, then that's okay. You still have interaction going on. So one is giving yourself time to just invite to that group. Two is knowing what you're inviting to and really laying that out in your invite. Like, do you struggle with anxiety? Do you want to learn to calm your nervous system? Do you want, you know, okay, great. You know, really setting it up. Like, are you experiencing X, Y, and Z? Here's what I can help you with, my meditation group. Here's when it starts. Come on in. And then really starting it. And and then it is being present in that group. And one, welcoming them. Two, telling them what their tasks are for the day to achieve their result. And three, when they're not, when they are struggling with whatever it is that they're going through, because they're going to struggle, nothing is going to be 100% perfect. It's being there for them and checking in and saying, this is what you're experiencing. Try this instead, or this is how to fix that. That's, that's a lot of what I do in my challenge groups is I just look for what the struggles are and then I go live in them. Because if one of the person's experiencing the struggle, there's probably a hundred of them, you know, in a group of 40,000, it's never just one person struggling with something. So I look for that. I look for the themes and then I'll go live and I'll talk about it. Okay. Are you having trouble with blah, 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 with your nutrition? Maybe they're struggling with what to eat before their pre-workout meal or how early to eat before they exercise, that sort of thing. And I'll go live 
and I'll just talk about it. And, you know, being live in your group is also really beneficial because it gives people a chance to ask you questions live. Mm -hmm. I love that. And so it starts a dialogue. I think that's awesome. So I want to know, like, how do you keep people motivated? Like 21 days is is not a short amount of time. And I feel <laughs> like every day there's got to be a natural attrition of people that are maybe falling short or not keeping that commitment to themselves. So how do you keep that energy going? Because that's a long time to keep it up. It's funny. 21 days is long, but 80 days is much yeah, longer. Right? 80 days is my program that's out right now. And so, yeah, that is the question I get a lot, which is how do you keep them going? And there is not one specific answer because again, one that is part of the reason for the group is like I said, they hold each other accountable and there is that energy that builds, right? Oh my gosh. Like you see everybody else in the group posting their sweaty selfie or saying how hard, but awesome the workout is. You want to be a part of that. You're like, oh, crap, I can't wait to get home and get mine done. I'm exhausted, but like, I can't miss out on that, right? So there's a little bit of that fear of missing out that keeps them accountable to want to do it because they are in this group. But sometimes it really is just checking in and finding that one comment and talking to that one person. You're struggling with da-da-da. Like, can't tell you, unfortunately, how many times I see people say that their significant other is not supportive, like in a really bad way. So it's talking directly to them. Like, I'm really sorry you're experiencing this and here's the things that you can do and you're worth this and this is about your health and blah, 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 blah. So it's really having that, that conversation with them, with that one person, because other people are still going to read the comments. They're still going to see that I talk to that person. But it's overall, I think it's it's however you let your community know that you are truly there for them. And when, when they feel like they're truly supported and encouraged, it just makes them want to keep going, I think. Every, like I said, everybody's different. And so there's no one right way to motivate people. Everybody's going to do it in their own way. And every day is going to be a little bit different. So in the first week of my fitness challenges, I'm always talking to them about probably everything that they're feeling, which is their whole body hurts. Why am I doing this? They're going through sugar withdrawals or detoxes and they've got migraines galore or like they're nauseous because their body's like, where's all the processed junk food? And they feel like crap. And so they want to give up. The second I tell them that that is what they're experiencing, Hey, I know you feel like this and this is why. It's like, "Oh, okay, it's I get it. It's going to pass." They see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Like, "Oh, get through this and you're going to feel better." And so that is motivation and encouragement to keep going. And then when you're at the 30-day mark, it's like, "Hey, you're at the 30-day mark. You're a third of the way done. Don't quit now. Like, look how far you've come." And then when you're at the 60-day mark, it's more like, you know what? You're in the last 20 days of this 80-day program. You're in it. You've set up these new lifestyles. But guess what? This journey doesn't end at 80 days. This is your life. This is not a 80-day journey. It's a lifelong journey. So come day 81, you're going to get up and do the same dang thing that you did for the last 80 days because you're not done. So it's really talking to them at the different stages of what they're in to encourage them to go to the next stage. 
So as you're talking about this, one thing that I think about and one thing that I know a lot of listeners on this show have also questioned is, let's say you're getting into some sort of like MLM business or multi-level marketing like Beachbody or skincare or supplements or whatever. How do you stand out among all the other people that are also selling the same stuff? What is your secret for standing out that way? Oh my goodness. Okay. So this is where... Well, first of all, I'll say this. Look, I get everybody needs to make money, wants to make it in their own way. I think, first of all, you have to truly believe in what you're selling. We have a saying at Beachbody, which is be the proof the product works. So for our coaches, we're telling them, like, use it and show that it works. So I think that that is really important. There's nothing more authentic than sharing your own experience and sharing your own struggles. That honestly is be authentically you and that's how you stand out. Don't try to be somebody else. If I was trying to be a different, if I was trying to mimic Sean T or mimic Kayla Itstein or anybody else in the fitness industry, then I wouldn't be being me. And we don't need another Sean T or another Kayla because we have them. We need Autumn. So whatever you're selling, you have to be you and sell and promote through that perspective, because that's how you're going to attract your tribe. That's how you're going to stand out because you have something genuine to bring to whatever you're promoting that people are going to want. You have a different telescope to see it through. Like everybody has that. So you have to show them the product that you're selling through your lens, not the lens of somebody else. Like you, That's why I think people fail a lot or quote unquote fail is they'll see somebody else selling it and they'll, they'll try to mimic what they're doing so hard because that person is having success. And then they're like, but why am I not having success? I'm doing everything that they're doing. And it's like, yeah, but you're not them. So while you can be inspired by what they're doing, maybe they're doing a lot of Instagram stories. You, you don't have to copy their Instagram story to a T. You need to do your own Instagram story based on what you're experiencing. So I think that's the biggest thing is just being authentically you will make you stand out from everybody else. I agree 100%. And I feel like I only trust when I hear people's personal experiences versus seeing like a stranger and their results. Like I'm like, I want to know, did you really do this? Did it actually work for you? Because I trust you and I don't know who this stranger is. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. And like, there's nothing wrong with showing them like, Hey, I've helped 10 other people get these results, but you still want to know what their experience was. Yes, exactly. Oh my goodness. Well, you are just this wealth of inspiration and excitement. I want to know where can everybody connect with you, learn more about you, see more about your journey. Give us all the places to connect. Yes. So the biggest place to find me is on Instagram. It's just at Autumn Calabrese. My Facebook is the same thing. It's at Autumn Calabrese. Twitter, and then you can check out my website, which is autumncalabrese.com. And if you're in the Los Angeles area, you can come visit me at Calabrese Cafe in Calabasas, which will be opening mid-October. Awesome. That is so exciting. We are so excited to continue to watch your journey. Thank you so much for coming on the Gold Digger podcast today. Well, that was an amazing show. I loved hearing Autumn's story, all of the twists and the turns and how she doesn't really chalk anything up as a failure. I think it's such a good reminder for all of us. 
a lot of times when we hear a no, it just feels like we're defeated. But when you really take a look back on life, were there ever really any failures? Or were those the things that led you to where you are today? I think it's so important as entrepreneurs that we start to acknowledge those twists in our paths as maybe divine interventions that are pushing us in the direction that we were meant to go. I loved hearing Autumn's story and I hope you enjoyed it too. We would love to hear from you over on Instagram at Gold Digger Podcast or just take a screenshot and tag me in it. Seriously, every single day when I hop into my DMs and see you guys tuning in, it totally lights a fire in me. Until next time, gold diggers, keep on digging your biggest goals. And thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Gold Digger Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Gold Digger Podcast. Dive into the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at www.golddiggerpodcast.com. If you love the show, share it with a friend. The more the merrier. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time, you gold digger you.